recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hello, Michael Colligan here, co-host of the Starving for Darkness podcast with Jane Slade. Today's show is with Harun Medmodinovich. Um, you can check out his uh, website, skyglowproject.com. This was a crazy good we- good podcast. I'm telling you, it was beautiful. Just exactly what Starving for Darkness is all about. Right now, it's International Dark Sky Week. But I think I speak on behalf of Jane Slade and everyone at Get a Grip Management and the Get a Grip Online podcast. We're going to call this International Dark Sky Year. That's right. 2021 is the International Darkness Year. We're bringing it hot. And this show is going weekly. And that's all thanks to our friends over at Rab Lighting. That's right. Go to rablighting.com slash dark sky. Check them out, Greg Eric. That's right. A company that's been around for 75 years, always been passionate about the dark sky movement. Have what you need to get the job done from the exterior to the interior to their light cloud system. That's the best control system out there for all lighting needs. Rab has it for you. They have the history. They have the background. Great company to work with. No more weeks. We're going full time with this. We're not taking any. We're not taking fifty-one of the weeks of the year off, Greg. We're going fifty-two weeks with this show. That's right. That's it's right. International Darkness Year. Not just skies. I'm talking dark earth, dark water, inside, outside. We need to bring back the darkness. So, thank you for listening. Thank you to RabLighting.com/slash/darksky. Check him out, Rab Lighting. But right now, we got Harun Medmodinovich on the Starving for Darkness podcast. Welcome to Starving for Darkness, Harun Medmedinovich. I think I did it better the first time when I tried it, but thank you for being a guest. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your... Actually, you know what? You go first, Jane. You always start it off. Okay, sure. Um, Hello, Harun. It's so nice to finally meet you. I have actually known of your work for quite some time, which I will get into that. Um, But we actually start the show off with uh, the same question for every guest, which is, please tell us about a dark sky experience that you had that was really profound. And I know we're going to get into a project that you did on dark skies, but it could be before that. It could be um, in your, you know, where you're from. Um, we want to hear all about that. So tell us about a dark sky experience that really was a profound experience for you. So um, when I was growing up, I grew up in rural Bosnia. In Europe, and anybody that's ever been uh, to Europe or has seen a light pollution map of Europe knows that it's a very light polluted place, um, astonishingly so. Actually, it's something like ninety nine percent light polluted, basically. So I I was lucky when I was growing up to grow up in a um, a rural part, at least for part of my childhood, of Bosnia, and that was one of the rare places in Europe which actually still had some intact sky. Uh, it had some like class two, class three uh, skies. So um, when I was growing up, I kind of fell in love with the with the night sky. But as far as the profound experience, I have to say it was many, many years later. Um, okay, so uh, when I was uh, 
finished high school and I was going to go to UCLA for um, college, I crossed uh, Route 40 driving through uh, New Mexico and Arizona. And on one of those spots, I'd stopped to take a break. And I didn't at that time think about the night sky. I didn't, it didn't really enter my mind much for many, many, many years. But I stepped out and I, and I looked up. I was just astonished when I, what I saw because it was the first time in my life I was probably seeing a, a class one or a class two night sky and it um got i think that was the time that it got into my mind this idea that you know is there a way to photograph this thing but uh this predated the cameras that you could really do that with um short of like having astronomy cameras and it was not something i was able to do then but it, it just kind of put a bug in my mind so when the cameras came out that could do that that was it was one of the first things that i did is to take a crack at some night photography um mm. but it was really that experience in the american southwest that was it was very important to that it was it started in my childhood but it was really cemented then well thank you so much for sharing and i i do think that that probably led to um that experience was probably a piece of what led to that project that you did sky glow um and i i just want to share with you that actually we have a point in common which is gavin heffernan um, mm -hmm. I went to college with Gavin and, um, he was doing plays at the time. I was studying religious studies, Buddhism and Hinduism. And, um, you know, uh, nearly two decades later, we met up in the, uh, dark sky space. And I actually included your project, the sky glow project in, um, the presentation that I, uh, that is actually the namesake for this podcast, starving for darkness. So thank you for your work. And, um, I think for the listeners, um, what is the SkyGo project? Will you tell us a little bit more about it? So we, you know, Gavin and I met in, at AFI in LA. We had studying, we were studying of fiction filmmaking, actually not really related to what we we're doing with SkyGo project. But we had a passion, I think, both of us, of just experimental filmmaking and interest for the night sky. And it was some kind of a, a kind of a hobby project that uh, came up, which was. I um, was taking still photographs of the night. He was doing time lapses heavily uh, of the night sky. And I was seeing that in his news feeds and, you know, Facebook. And he was seeing my stuff. So we decided, hey, why don't we get together and do some uh, shop in northern Arizona in particular? Because I knew the area was great. And he hadn't really gone up there. So I convinced him to <laughs> come over to Arizona. And then we started to work together uh, to actually just photograph just for fun. And then uh, what what really uh, surprised us, I guess, was the amount of attention that this was getting once we mm -hmm. put it out. We were doing it just for fun, but it was it was millions of views that were happening. So we knew there was something interesting there. There was interest. Um, there was uh, some kind of passion in the audience, this particular subject questions, all that sort of stuff. And uh, so we decided let's just do more and more and more. And then the question was, uh, how do we expand this into like a full-fledged project that has a name and, and everything else attached to it. And this is where we can, you know, thought about it a little bit. And sky glow is, as a term came up, it's a scientific term for uh, light polluted sky, um, which sounded good to us. It, it got people to wonder, what do you mean by sky globe? You know, it was just kind of mm -hmm. a catchy, really short name. And we knew as photographers of the night sky that we cannot have a project that doesn't disguise light pollution. It's just integral. So that's why I always say uh, whoever does astrophotography, and I'm, this is kind of a hack astrophotography. I think astronomers may take an issue with us calling ourselves <laughs> astrophotographers. There's a scientific form of photography 
called astrophotography, which needs to be respected. It's different than what we do. Uh, so mm-hmm. I just jokingly say we do hack astrophotography, which is we do it for fun. We do it for aesthetics, not for scientific purposes. Uh, and uh, we, you know, we knew that by doing that, we were kind of just by default activists. You know, we were showing something that was disappearing that people didn't know about. So when people would see it, they would ask us a lot of questions. Why don't we see this? Like, where are you shooting this? Is this fake? Is it animated? We get all those kind of mm-hmm. questions. Explain to them. Well, the reason why you're not seeing it is because there's this problem that's happening that you might not be aware of. It's called light pollution. Uh, and you're probably a contributor to it. <laughs> and, and, it and it is pollution. It is pollution. It is. Yeah. It is. And you know, the, the thing that isn't discussed much about it is the impact that it has on our body and everything around us because we just didn't even know about it till a lot of these studies started to come out very recently, actually. I want to ask you a little bit. Um, your name, uh, Medmodinovich. Um, so you're you're from Bosnia. Um, when did you? Are you an American citizen now? I'm now. Yeah, yeah. So I when, left when, Bosnia my whole family many many years ago when I was a child actually. How old were you when you left? I think I was twelve. What year was when that? I, left. I was nineteen ninety five. That's a pretty rough time to be in that part of the world. Yeah, we we had to uh, endure uh, four years of uh, disaster, you know, that unfolded in Balkans. And uh, uh, some of some people that got lucky, they got out early. We decided to stay, and that was a big mistake um, in hindsight. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it was, you know, at the same time, I walked out, you know, without um, dying, you know, which was what what happened to a lot of people in that. So, you know, I mean, whatever that doesn't kill you, make you stronger, I guess. I think, it, you know, my experience mm-hmm. of war in Balkans did influence a lot of things that I do. So uh, it's, in fact, influenced everything, really. there's It kind of colors everything in your life from that point on. And you really consider uh, some questions like, you know, what you know, what makes life worth living? And I think for me, <laughs> in many ways, it's to be out in nature and to do projects through nature. And I find that to be very important. Um, and we live at a time where a lot of these things are disappearing. And we're a generation or two away from not having many of these things than being science fictionally at that point. Uh, unfortunately, that is the case with the night sky as well, which is one of those things which a person growing up 20, 30, 40 years from now, they may never see it in their life again, uh, ever. Um, well, I'm Canadian. So Canada is basically, a most of it is a dark sky place. Which is a really- which is a rarity for a developed country, yes. Well, Canada is enormous, right? So right. Can, when people, when you talk about Canada, you can think of like Canada kind of like Chile is on Arizona. Mm-hmm. Canada is kind of really is like a belt along the top of the United States and the rest of Canada is largely not, there's nobody living there. Um, you know, right. there is some very, not a lot of, put it this way, there's not a lot of electric lights. Let's put it that way. No. When you start going north. And in fact, m- most of Ontario has no roads. So most of the province right. I live in doesn't have roads. More of it has no roads than has roads. So you can get the dark sky in Canada. But tell me a little bit about, you know, what that time in your life and how that granted you perspective and how that dovetails into looking and being awestruck by the skies. Well, I mean, like our ex- war experience was one of being stuck in indoors you know, for a long time, or being stuck in a city for a long time. Uh, Sarajevo at, at that time was under siege for over a thousand days, which is longer than Stalingrad. So it means really, I was in a situation that was uh, my soda version of a nightmare. Uh, 
uh, situation, which is where you're not able to really go out and be in nature, which is the way I grew up. Um, and I link nature, experience of nature, and night sky being one of those experiences is an experience of freedom. Is an important one. So in other words, uh, what the war did for me is it got me to really think, where do I want to spend my life? Mm-hmm. And what it is that I want to spend time doing. So uh, it, you know, it's, it's got me to, instead of sort of stumble upon out in beautiful places, is to seek those beautiful places out. That is the big factor of the war. And uh, so, yeah, having, um, having gone through that, I, my sort of conclusion was as a kid, and I still think of that is is never to be stuck in a place again right is to always be out in the move and out in nature as much as i can and to do projects which um you know can educate and can you know in, if possible help um people to understand the value of having nature and i think there's a i think there's a unifying value to nature so it, yeah. what's interesting so i lived in in belfast northern ireland for a year mm-hmm. between 98 and 99 and a lot of people my age, I was, I, I ran into a lot of people. And what's interesting about Belfast, Northern Ireland is that the people that are in conflict with each other are ethnically the same people. Mm-hmm. There's no racial difference between them. They're just different religions. Okay. And they're both Christian religions or just different Christian sects or, and there's a sectarian violence. And I would say to them things like they would say ridiculous things to me, like, are you British Canadian? Or French Canadian. Like, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Like, nobody ever says that in Canada. There's no British Canadian. That's not a thing. Okay? Like, that doesn't exist. And I would be asked these types of questions. And I would, the the only response I could give to them that made sense is that you need to get the hell out of Northern Ireland for a little while and, you know, get into nature. And how, you know, once you're, you're, you see a sky like that or once you're in nature, a lot of the differences kind of dissolve in the awe of the universe. And I think our world has lost that, Haroon. Would you, would you share that view? Well, yeah, I think uh, this, uh, what's fundamental to human beings is, and I think it's, it's a meditative experience, um, is to be able to go and uh, take walks in nature, to be able to coexist with nature. Uh, that is a really, um, it's just when you look at human history, we have spent all our really existence living in um, wild places. So our whole being is wired to take these places in. And in fact, when they did studies of brain scans of people that sit in the room versus be in nature, your literally brain is at 10% activity when you're sitting in a room somewhere uh, because it's not being engaged by central experiences. Like you're literally not training parts of your brain or interacting with parts of your brain that respond to places like nature. So in other words, you could say that it's it's sort of like water and food for us in many ways from a mental health standpoint in order to be able to be in these places. And what we've done is we've both sapped people of that experience, which contributes to things like depression and many other issues that we're facing. It's not the only reason, of course, but it's one of the contributors. And then secondly, uh, as far as the night sky, just speaking specifically about the night sky here, uh, experience of a pure class one sort of class two night sky is one of being given a perspective and a a bit of an epiphany as a human being about your place (laughs) in the universe as well that is the other big Mm -hmm. factor here which that you gain a perspective that you're a tiny little thing this thing is so much bigger it's so much bigger than where we are 
Um, and that I think is a, is an underrated sort of part of the experience of the wild is, is that it's actually the experience of the sublime and there is no sublime that you can experience stronger than the outer space. It's just simply there is, is what it is. So that, you know, th there was once a, a guy that told me, um, he was in Bolivia and they were out in the salt flats and at night he wasn't even thinking about the night when he went over there, he wanted to go and see the salt flats. But when the night came and, and they were camping out there, he realized that there's stars below him and above him because they're so reflective that he was just overwhelmed. He was like, I felt like mm -hmm. I was floating in space and it really changed me. Like that turned out to be my memorable moment of that experience mm -hmm. of going to beautiful places in South America. But he said that that was the most important singular moment. And I can understand that because it really gets you to think because it's not just that sort of experience of, wow, it's just me. It's a tiny person floating in, in outer space. But it's also this, these questions of, you know, what's out there. And, uh, and like, humans have our, always known this, Harun. Humans have always known yeah. this. It's not like modern science has delivered us the vastness of the universe. Humans wow. would, that's why we sent burnt lamb smoke up to heaven because yeah. of the stars. It's not because right. of, we knew the vastness of the universe primordially, not because of science. No, no, it's a very, that's the thing that I always uh, kind of laugh when I talk to my astronomy friends. They're really afraid to admit that there's a spiritual component to seeing the night sky. They always say, oh, I don't want to talk about that because I, I feel like my friends are going to make fun of me. But I think you can acknowledge, you don't have to believe in God or not. You can acknowledge that there's a kind of an yeah. awe-striking awe experience that is spiritual in a way, and it's fine to admit that. It is a very sort of inherent thing to being a human being. And I don't think it's even just a human being. I think other animals in the world respond to the night sky. We of know course. that, right? So it, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, this moved me. There's a reason why I'm into astronomy. It's because I fell in love with it. It's not because I intellectually was curious. It's because I was viscerally drawn. It's because to you it. have it's a soul. It's because we have souls. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, we have souls. Like we're, exactly. we're and and you know, elephants. I think have souls too. Actually, in a way, when you look at them in the eye, they're thinking something, yeah. man. And you know, so there, there's something. There, there's, uh, there's a relationship. Like, and I've said this before on the show and the other show. So I hope people don't think I'm being repetitive. But there's a reason why, like, the Sphinx looks at the constellation leo while the great pyramid of giza is pointed at the center star of orion's belt like that's not yeah. an accident man these are no. these things are pan-religious and beyond culture they are deep in us and sublime is the right word 100 percent 100 percent. so i think without having that experience but i think especially without having that experience as a child mm. i think we're really sapped of an element of imagination, which is very important. And you can actually see that. And if you've ever heard um, Neil deGrasse Tyson in particular talk about how he got to astronomy, it was actually a really interesting story. Uh, his family, he was living in like um, inner city, New York City. He didn't get access to the beautiful night skies of the Southwest. He had never gone out to see that. What happened was his parents took him to Hayden Planetarium he saw basically a fake star show, a planetarium show, and that's what got him to fall in love with the stars. So think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. Like, he yeah. didn't even get to see the real night sky until I believe he was late teens, early 20s. That's unbelievable. Like, he yes. had already wanted to do astronomy, but he had never gotten a chance to see the night sky. It's crazy to me. But it tells you how important that is. And without having that as a child, it removes a lot of the 
I think uh, uh, sort of triggers of curiosity and imagination, and I and I think it, it sort of then snowballs into all these other negative things. Harun, I think it's really interesting how you talk about how um, y- your past and and you know growing up in Bosnia and that terrible experience that you experienced and survived as a human, and how nature was also this this access to a sense of freedom for you. Um, and I was watching one of your, and I, I will say also that I, I went to Sarajevo in 2018 um, and mm-hmm. I, I was out driving around the region and um, it is palpable still, the history there. It's um, the history that took place there in the nineties. Um, it's, you can feel it still. And so um, I, I heard you say in your interview that you were, uh, you felt very energetically tied to Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I wonder what is that tie for you and how connected is it to the night sky for you? Um, and just talk about that sense of freedom that you feel that, uh, you know, in juxtapos- juxtaposition, we know that eight out of 10 school children don't have access to the night sky in North America. So I just want to hear your your feeling about uh, the night sky's relationship to why you felt connected to Arizona to settle. So, you know, my connection to Arizona actually is a really odd dog kind of thing, how I arrived to it anyway. As a child, I was a big fan of uh, Western comic books. And uh, I used to read all these sort of cowboys and type stuff. And um, one thing I didn't quite connect is a lot of these places that they drew in these comic books were taken off of photographs of particular places in the Southwest. Like they were drawn to like to images, to actual real things. And so when I got to Arizona and the Southwest really, and I got to actually see these places like the Monument Valley, for example, it kind of blew my mind to see something in a comic book come to life. You know, it was almost like I stepped into it. It was just an odd thing to describe as a child, like, because I did see it pretty much as a kid. Like we landed in Arizona when we came to U.S. So I got to see a few of these places pretty quickly. And um, I think it was like a magical experience of um, something that I saw drawn and come to life. So there was that Mm -hmm. component to it. But. The other thing about it is just is the sort of peacefulness. It's the vastness, peacefulness, especially at night. You know, in some of these places, you're not even hearing much of airplanes. It's just kind of a, a kind of sense of peace. It allows you to, to get away from this noise of the city. And the noise of the city, I think it bothers a lot of people even without knowing it, but it bothers me in particular uh, more so maybe even than they are because of my sort of traumatic experience as a kid mm-hmm. uh, of the war and sort of the sounds of the city were really nightmare sounds for a long time in my childhood. And, you know, is is city because of all the bombardments and all the, all the gunshots and everything else was all those sorts of that kind of, kind of concophony of sounds is what I link to cities is just kind of constant barrage and assault on your senses of mm-hmm. sound. And when you go to these places where there's almost no sound, where there's just quiet, for long stretches of time, you just the way that your body engages and your spirit engages with these places is different. It, it, it's kind of like, wow, I'm finally home, is the way it felt to yeah. me. And I think that's because we are all as humans when we arrive in those places, kind of at home. But sometimes we're afraid of that because we haven't, we don't know about it. We haven't, you know, we haven't seen it, uh, or because we grew up in a city and we never experienced, you know, nature. But really, it's in us. Like when we get there, when we experience that, especially. One, I mean, the night sky is a particular link for me as well because of my childhood. Uh, when I was a kid, 
I was able to see the Milky Way from where we were in Bosnia, which is a rarity anymore in, in Europe. And I was actually able to see something else, which I didn't link to the night sky at the time, which was fireflies. We grew up with a lot of mm. fireflies. It was, it was a very firefly-rich region. And so I always linked fireflies and stars visually together because uh, in the summers, that's what I would see. I'd be out in, at night and you'd be seeing the stars and you'd see the fireflies. I didn't know that these were related to later, but I fell in love with that image. And so in other words, when I saw it again, especially in places like Smoky Mountains in America, uh, it, it was like coming back home to a really early part of childhood. Mm -hmm. And it felt really, there was a lot of comfort in that because it was the one positive part of my childhood, which was a traumatic childhood. But there was a sort of a positive window of time, which was that early childhood, uh, rural Bosnia. And, and when I started reliving some of those places in, in other uh, continents, right? Uh, like in this case, America, I was kind of like coming back home in, in a way. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. exactly the same looking landscape at times, but it feels right. You know, it's a kind of a very, uh, only way I could describe it is a very primal connection, mm -hmm. uh, which is something I can even fully describe. So um, a little bit about fireflies. Um, there's over 2,000 species. They are <laughs> on every continent but Antarctica. <laughs> and um, they've done studies. And in the presence of light, they uh, exhibit 50% less flashes. Um, each species has a unique language between. So all 2,000 species may have different appearances and how they relate to one another. Um, but it's just such a beautiful example of an organism that not only needs darkness, but also utilizes light as a language. Um, and and you're not alone, Haroon. There's so many people that have nostalgic, beautiful memories of fireflies that we're truly taking that away from our from from our kids. And um, you know, you talk about this barrage of being in a city, um, and and it's light and sound. You're you're absolutely right that this it's a totally different experience than being out and connected to nature. Um, and so, you know, you talk about the stimulation of noise and, and that that has a specific tie to an event in your life. Um, but I think that the stimulation of light is mm -hmm. is now happening across all people. And and um, I was reading on your website, you had a fantastic quote, um, uh, someone referring to night as artificial day. and. Um, God, what a loss that is, because it's so true. It's a mediocre day um, and it's no yeah. awestruck night. So it, it's just really interesting to um, hear your your take on it. And and so, you know, it's sort of like a shift of our relationship to nature, which is one of reverence and um, meditation to being controlling and um, wanting to kind of really capture nature. And so how did your Sky Glow project uh, begin to shift your own consciousness as you went through? Because I know you traveled 150,000 miles. Um, and then how did it change and transform you and your thoughts? And then as it went out to the public and you were getting so many millions of views, how did it transform the public's thoughts? Well, for me, what it meant is that I get to see some places I otherwise would not be able to see or wouldn't even think of seeing. At times, seeking out the night sky takes you to places you wouldn't think about. 
there may be more obscure places, maybe not always national parks. So it gave me a richer experience of, of the country. I actually visited um, a lot of the Canadian provinces as well. I visited, you know, every U.S. state, all 50 states. So I got to actually see a lot more than an average American does uh, of their own country. Uh, and I got to see some places, again, that aren't necessarily always obviously on a map. So that was very important because you get to meet the country in a much better way. You get a much more holistic view of the place where you live. And it got me to be a little bit more open-minded or understanding of different kinds of people that live in the country. There's a lot of mm. anger in America and a lot of divisions. And what I found about the Night Sky in particular is that it was a unifying uh, uh, mm. force between all these people because when we would go with our project to places like Nebraska, like take for example uh, Alliance Nebraska, we had a presentation at a high school gymnasium to basically a Trump voting audience probably by like 90% and uh, they all loved the night sky. They were all asking how can we do something about this? We find this very important. It doesn't really matter what way they connect to it. It just is a fact that they connect to it. You know, like uh, an astronomer may look at the sky and say, science, uh, they may look at the sky and say, God, but they're both connecting to the sky. That's important. And this can be a unifying factor. So that is the other thing I learned, which is a great lesson of this whole thing, is that everybody out there somehow finds night sky important. I had yet to find a hater uh, that says, <laughs> this is not important. You know, go to North Korea, uh, you know, if you want night skies, you know, like, in other words, people, you know, when you start talking to them, they're like, no, we find this very important. And in fact, you, you'll see that when you go to national parks or to public places, there's a variety of people that go to those and they all find this to be very important. So that's, I think. You know, Haroon, cool what's interesting as, about that, what's interesting about that is Jane and I have had discussions off air about trying mm -hmm. to keep this show apolitical. And, mm -hmm. you know, also searching our own selves for our own political biases and, you right. know, uh, you know, I wrote a, I wrote an email to Jane saying, we got to keep this show political and non-political. And Jane wrote back saying, your email is actually pretty political. And then I reread it and it actually was. What? And yeah. so, you know, these default um, emotions and positions that we have just get wiped away by the sound of silence and the awe of, the, of, of a beautiful starlit sky. And I think everyone can rally around that. It, it's almost like it's, the you had said earlier in the show i mean jane we could call there's another name for this show it could be the starving for silence podcast in a way too yeah totally. like it, it's almost yeah. they're they're almost synonyms to one another because they mm -hmm. always come together if you see a beautiful dark rich um night sky it's probably 99 percent. it's going to be super quiet there's not going to be trucks going down a highway that you can hear or whatever, what have you, right? So they're almost sitting interchangeable in a way. Um, but yeah, this is this is the movement that we call it. The movement is what we call it. Like this, this, this quest for darkness is is beyond politics. It, it's primordial, and it's above everything that we're that we th we're we're dealing with on a daily basis in Canada, the United States, or the European Union, or wherever. It's beyond it, quite frankly. Yeah, no, it is. Um, yeah. So, Karun, you. I hope I did. <laughs> I, I I didn't catch what you said there. Well, I said uh, I hope I answered your question, though. I I don't know if I did, but. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yes, you did. And um, I'm sure there's infinite more. 
questions. Um, well, the, the other and, thing, I, I guess, yeah. uh, just to follow up a little bit on, on it, you asked what did the putting these images out to the public mean? Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. That's a that's a, a good one. Uh, the I find that when we we started, uh, which was now about eight years ago, about eight years ago, it's almost like a decade, really. Um, back then, discussion of light pollution, um, curiosity about it, and all that sort of stuff, and now are very different. I find now a lot more people know about it. A lot That's more great. people, and they're a lot more present in the general discussion. And it's now actually a matter of um, policy national parks, which it really wasn't back then. Uh, things have changed for the positive in a way that most parks now are protected. That they've taken pictures and are actually selling the night sky as a component and have gotten feedback on that, which is, I believe, that, that about 35% of the visitors come for the night sky. That's important because those people are going to go back and educate others and more people will then come that can't afford to come and able to. And that is a very important sort of a, a sort of wheel that's begun to spin, which really wasn't spinning much when we started. And you know what? Mm-hmm. On, on top of that, so Jane and I are both from different sections of the lighting industry. Okay. So Jane's a lighting designer. I uh, own a lighting contract. I'm not quite a designer, just so you know. Something. Um, I'm sure some designers will take take up with that. But <laughs> so <laughs> I'm the, somewhere over there. She's somewhere over there. I'm yeah. on the other end. Yeah. But you know what's interesting? I think that I see the paradigm shifting. And what I see it shifting to is the lighting industry actually starting to sell darkness. Like darkness will become a commodity that the lighting industry can deliver, which is valuable to people. I I, I think that's an interesting paradigm to think about because no one has ever talked about that until I I started talking about it with Jane Jane and I started discussing this on this podcast, that darkness has value, that value is real. It's tangible and people know it when they get it. And right now they don't know what they're missing, but when they get it, they know it. And so I, I think that the, to an extension to what you're saying, that the lighting industry can actually sell darkness, not just to national parks, but also neighborhoods, suburban neighborhoods, perhaps even you know downtown uh, areas of uh, metropolitan areas and, and urban areas. Uh, who knows, you know, maybe there'll be levels and application-based stuff, but we can get darkness to people. It's something we can deliver and we don't have to go to Mars and we don't have to go to space to do it. We can stay right here with our feet on the earth and we can we can contemplate the universe. So um, I think there's hope. I disagree with you that it's going to disappear because this show is committed to making it not disappear. And the final point to that, Haroon, that I'm saying is that we have all the technology there is no shortage of technology, understanding, knowledge, engineering. It's just a matter of deployment at this point. It's not a matter of anything else. Technology is there. Engineering is there. Knowledge is there. All we need is the demand from the consumers. That's it. And this thing will happen. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's a, a big potential of a certain shift eventually, uh, which will go into the positive. I think we're seeing a little bit of that. In particular, with these big reserves being creative, uh, created around, you know, there's one in Canada, which is Mont Magentic, up yep. in Quebec. Um, there's now one in Idaho. There will be one, I think, if we're lucky, here there will be one that's almost the size of the entire state of Utah, uh, which is the Colorado Plateau Dark Side Cooperative, uh, which means that there will be sections, hopefully they'll be protected for a forever, 
because it's going to be codified in law. Uh, and that's important. It started in Flagstaff, but now it's really spread. It started in Flagstaff in the 50s, and then there hadn't been a place like Flagstaff for decades after that. It was the unique city which had lighting ordinance, which was proper. Uh, not like a little bit positive, but a great lighting ordinance for, for decades. Now that's spreading, and that's actually given me some hope because it's uh, whether people are aware or not of this issue, that'll still hold, uh, right? Uh, and the other thing is, uh, this is just sort of my, my sales pitch on this whole uh, lighting issue, which is, let's say that you don't care about the spiritual side of it, meaning seeing the night sky. <laughs> you care about your money. It'll save you money. We know that, right? Like if you use light more sparingly, if you use it smartly, if you use LEDs that are proper LEDs, if you use cottage bulbs, it is going to actually save you money. Do you want to save money? You can do that. You don't have to care for the night sky. You can still uh, uh, be a pro uh, doing better light lighting. Um, and the you know the other thing is you know how much do you, how much does one care about their health? Um, do you want your health better? You want to be able to sleep better? Do you want to be able to have your melatonin be produced properly? Your body clock regulated? Do you want to like not pay more money and deal with more bills because you get di different diseases which come? which are contributed to by light pollution. Do you care about that? Well, you then want to maybe control light. You don't have to always care about the night sky to care about light management. Uh, you know, to, to your point in terms of selling this idea of darkness, which is hard to our, you know, I, iPhone or Android addicted audience, myself included, um, there's a, actually an author, Mark Jewell, he wrote this book called Selling Energy. And uh, his main point, actually, is that you cannot sell the idea of uh, money savings because, quite frankly, it is so boring, especially to Americans, that mm -hmm. if you once you start saying, oh, you're going to save 30 percent with this, this new LED, your audience is glazed over in boredom. And I think the mm -hmm. ticket is actually much more going to be selling the idea of the health benefits of darkness. Um, mm -hmm. Because I don't think, pe and the other side of that is that I'm still really upset and mad about this whole energy efficiency uh, thing because it's exactly how we got here. We, we sold energy efficient lighting for a decade and we, we basically created an entirely new environmental problem um, with light yeah. pollution. So I, the, the energy efficiency thing is a slippery slope because I think unless people know the, the power and ability of, an, of one single LED to cause harm, um, that it's just too easy to sell something brighter and then and get yourself back in that hole. Um, now, I, I think, you know, in, in meeting you here on this podcast and seeing your work that you have um, worked on this Sky Glow project, which seems like a very organic transformation of how that came into your life. And now I see you're, you're actually pairing up with Hollywood. Uh, you co-produced uh, Ice on Fire with Leonardo mm -hmm. DiCaprio. Um, so how, what has it been like pairing up with Hollywood for, for your environmental projects? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, there has been in Hollywood an interest in global warming or education related around global warming. Um, so that was nothing new. Um, what, as far as Ice and Fire goes, this was a, a project that was born really out of um, a theory 
that came out about 10 years ago, which at the time was curious to a lot of people. It was the gun class rate theory. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's this idea that if we have a fast melt of the permafrost in particular, there'll be mm. uh, methane, which exists in permafrost. We know it. It's a lot of it. As well, in the Arctic, it'll be released so quickly that the Earth won't be able to mitigate it, and we'll have basically an extinction-level event, which actually is much, much worse than any big asteroid, um, turns out, because the asteroid is just a matter of debris and rock, atmosphere and settling. Um, methane would actually cook the planet straight up, uh, and, mm. and it would be something one cannot escape. There would be no underground bunker. Uh, to deal with the methane situation. It would just be too vast and too complicated to mitigate, and it would be basically the end of all life but single-cell organisms, depending on how bad it would get. Um, so that theory, when it came out, got a lot of people wondering, is this possible? We've found out now there's some truth to it and some you know, falsities to this, to this idea, to this theory. It doesn't mm -hmm. quite hold true. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, they wanted to do a movie that talks about that. And it was something that DiCaprio's company was spearheading. And uh, they liked what I did in uh, spe specifically in Skyglow, really, which was nature processes, you know, uh, done through time lapse. So they liked that. And that's, that's how I got this gig to, do, to work on this set of film. But what was nice about it was, for me anyway, is it took me to more, more places I haven't been especially out mm -hmm. in the Arctic, and you get those environments, and they're really um, not for humans. And uh, often humans that survive, they're a special breed of humans. Um, it, these are very extreme environments of, you know, you're looking at minus 60, minus 80 degrees sometimes in some of them, and to be able to live, it, it requires a lot of care and attention to be able to function up in those environments and not make mistakes mm -hmm. to get you killed. Um, so it was it was just on personal level. It was a good experience to uh, be able to go through that and just understand that hey, I can survive in these environments and uh, for extended amount of time, and I can you know um, uh, also see some of these places which I've been, you know it's seeing that kind of a landscape like a Svalbard is unique. There's no other quite place like it. You have to really go all the way to Antarctica to see some of that, or you go all the way to the north to see some of that, and it's like another planet. It's almost like mm -hmm. you landed on some kind of a frozen wasteland mm. somewhere, and it really gets you to understand our planet a little bit better. The, you know, different conditions that exist on it, and um, it really got me to actually appreciate the warmth. Whole lot of discussion. Well, you know, I, I used to complain about humidity. I never will again. After I'll tell that. you this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the, meth methane is an interesting thing because. Um, there's a lot of information coming out about methane right now. And, you know, everyone hears about this many, you know, 200 and whatever micrograms of CO2, whatever the number is or whatever. But methane is a far more potent greenhouse gas, way more potent and has a yeah. significantly lower half-life than, than CO2. And so yeah. if we can get rid of the meth methane, it, it should probably go like methane first, then CO2. It's It's really... Yeah. Like people have their minds in the wrong place. Like CO2 is a much harder dragon to slay. Methane's yeah. a lot easier to take care of. It's a, it's a matter of maintenance of oil wells and, and pipelines. Methane is valuable as a commodity. You can sell it. Um, uh, you know, it's, there's, uh, it's got to do with cows and a couple other areas. But if we got rid of the methane, we'd solve a huge chunk of the climate change problem. Um, you know, so methane's a solvable problem. 
Uh, light pollution is a solvable problem. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, it's kind of looping back a little bit here. We talked about, you know, um, the different issues. I think the number one thing to overcome is the perception that more light equals more safety. I, that is, seems to be the, yes. the, like the, 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 the litigious nature of the, of the Western now, like not just the United States, Canada is almost as bad as the United States with lawsuits. And it's that litigious nature that the assumption that there should have been a light there, there should have been more uniformity. And had there been more light at 5,000 Kelvin, this crime never would have been committed. And so we have to light every street and every back parking lot all night long like a prison yard. That mindset is the thing standing in the way, Haroon. How do we get rid of that? Uh, well, <laughs> Um, but there's a way to do it. I, I think you have to talk to the police uh, of the towns uh, that really have the ear of the mayor and the uh, council members often. Um, police often don't quite understand glare uh, because they haven't really mm. been educated the idea of glare. That, you know, if we were to shield the lights in particular, just let's start with the idea of shielding. Uh, there's actually a good company uh, that had some great ideas out of Edmonton um, called Lumican, uh, their big thing was to create um, a, a street-specific shielding, understand where the light goes, and then shield it so it goes only onto the sidewalks, uh, not blasting into the cars that are driving by and not blasting into the houses that are next mm -hmm. to those roads, but to basically build light footprints using, um, using shields. So if you were to actually take a cop, uh, a, a sheriff in any of these uh, you know, municipalities, and you were to sh uh, sh show them a demo. And the demo would involve one big blasting light in all directions with their big, big, kel high Kelvin, uh, high wattage, giant amount of light light. Um, then next to that one is one that's slightly shielded, and next to that one is one that's highly shielded. They'll still illuminate the, the floor just the same, but what they'll see in, in that is if you put a person underneath that very bright light, you actually won't be able to see them. Uh, that's just a matter of what the glare does to you. you. You are actually struggling with the glare in order to see. And that is like a really simple demonstration that one can do to any mm -hmm. uh, police officer to explain to them, it's not the amount of light going in different directions and brightness like that, but it's actually how that light comes down plays a really important role. I think, I mean, yes, we can improve the bulbs and and all that sort of stuff. But it, I think if we just had proper shields, it would be a very good first step. One of the big problems is when you see a lot of these lights is the light is really flying in all directions. That's specifically true in places like stadiums. When I was photographing around cities, stadiums always stuck out to be the brightest objects and the most complicated things to deal with. Because if you were to shoot next to them, it'd be actually even hard getting lower length exposures because they were just flooding everything with light. They were just causing these big, white-out, burned-out parts of the image because that light was strong and it was flying right at you. Um, I mean, that's not the full solution to the issue, but I think having proper shielding and showing that to, to police would help. And in fact, there was a guy doing that. I think his name is um, Lowenthal. He's a professor, I think it's Smith. Yes, um, James Lowenthal, yep. I think he did that. I think he had a little uh, demo that he would do where he would do these custom um, shields that he would build and he can cut them and, and I think shape them to particular lights and he would take them to different towns around you know Northampton area and so on and he would meet with the 
with the police and he would give them these, these these demos and say, hey, check this out. You know, this is properly shielded, but look, you can actually see better now. And he said that this was giving him really good tangible results. Like the police would give him feedback and say, wow, if we knew this, we didn't know this. That's the thing. People are just not educated on a lot of these things. I think the safety thing, I mean, yes, we can have an argument with people and say, look, we've done studies and we can prove to you with studies that more light doesn't mean more safety. And in fact, in some places where light had dropped, safety had increased. We can talk about that ad nauseum, but they won't often hear that because they have really preset notions. But if you show them, hey, if you have a better shielded light, which will be better for, for the environment anyway, and will be better for light pollution, it will give you better visibility. So that's something they can actually see on a spot and be like, oh, I get it. But often when you talk to them about concepts and theories and studies, they're like, oh, whatever, man. That doesn't mean anything to me. I just want more can light. I, can you I just want more light. Yeah. More exactly. light, the better. I, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. And, and the concept of controllability now, we have so much ability. We have such an advanced ability to control these light sources now that mm -hmm. it's, it's almost willful negligence. That's almost where it's at. If you don't specify, like, for example, if there's an emergency in the neighborhood, there's absolutely no reason why a police can't call a 9-1 operator and say, hey, can you turn up the lights in this neighborhood and change the Kelvin temperature to 5,000K? That is totally doable. Like, there's mm -hmm. absolutely no reason why that's not doable. It's 100%. All the technology is there. There's no reason for that at whatsoever at all to not have that functionality being specified and built in by municipalities. It's it's willful negligence. It's irresponsible. Well, <coughs> excuse me. It's willful negligence by some and complete ignorance by others. And so the purpose of this show and our social media strategy is to take this to the people. Take it to the individuals on TikTok and Instagram and 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 Twitter and Facebook and spread the message. Um, you know, Haroon's going to have little clips of you speaking and showing your work on, on, on these social medias. So we're going to blast them. And what we want is we want the top of the industry coming down and making lighting ordinances and creating light fixtures like Lumican, like you, that, uh, well, Lumican will send you the invoice after, don't worry, um, <laughs> for this little spot that Haroon gave you here. But I uh, just went on their website right now. Yeah, they got wonderful fixtures there. Um, and then we're, what we're trying to do with Jane and I is trying to build that momentum up from the bottom so that young people know what light trespass means. Young people know that light pollution is pollution. It's not a metaphor. It's not a synonym. It is pollution. And that's what we're trying to accomplish, Haroon. Um, Haroon, yeah. I think yeah. you actually came up with a fantastic idea, which is that if the, you know, if the number one problem is that the conception that more light is safer, which is sometimes true, but not always true. Then, uh, you know, if we can actually pair up with police enforcement to say, we need to start educating about what makes good visibility, because that's really what police want. They want more visibility. They don't want more light. And so uh, actually, right. if we were to to properly create a campaign that engaged police enforcement so that we could actually start to say, look, if the police are happy, then then you can rest assured that you will be seen should that need arise. So I think um, 
if we can we can actually connect up with law enforcement about the idea that more light is not necessarily safer, I think that creates a lot of authority on the topic and a lot of people feeling like, oh, okay, well, then I can still feel safe with a redesign of light. So I think that's a actually a dot that you're connecting here on this podcast that I think is a fantastic idea mm-hmm. for communities yes. to really loop in police uh, enforcement into their lighting design decisions so that people can really feel comforted by the reduction of light levels instead of feeling like they're being left out, you know, you know, in the dark. So that's a great, great idea. When somebody asked me once, what would be the most important thing to do to try to uh, deal with the issue? I said, it's, it's really police education. You know, like I would love, for example, to have a, some kind of a traveling light setup, which I can like take to these places. You can literally like drive it up to the police and then demo, 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 demo through the entire country. If you, you know, if you could do that kind of a 18 wheeler or whatever that setup would be, uh, th- that would be like one of the best things you could do for light pollution. Because if all these police officers saw it and they went to their mayor and said, dude, like, let's change this now. Like this thing is great. We love this. Uh, th- that would make a big difference, especially because we're now really entering this major uh, retrofitting period, which will last for a while. So there's a lot of decision made in a lot of places on what our next lighting is going to be. Um, you know, like Los Angeles made some real poor choices, for example. Sure. Yep. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think they made them, um, and somebody can correct me on this, is because I don't think police was involved with that as much as they should have mm-hmm. in this way. No, I think I, were, I'll, I'll correct you on that. Um, the reason why those decisions were made was because the lighting industry became completely obsessed with lumens per watt. Would you agree with that, uh, Jane, as well? And that yeah. uh, more light equals good, high, whiter light is better, and the more the uniform, the safer everybody is. The lighting industry operated on that premise for about 10 years from 2009 to today. And that is now starting to change that premise that more light is better, whiter light is better, and the most uniformity you can possibly achieve equals mm-hmm. safer. That was uh, just um, it was an assumption. And then they were paid for by the, uh, the, the hydro bills, the electricity bills of the people of Los Angeles. So the people of Los Angeles paid that pay their hydro electricity bills paid for about 50% of it. And quite frankly, you know, there's a, there's a couple of municipalities up here in Toronto that paid the same price. It's a disaster. It's a dark sky disaster. A lot of the fixtures are burned out. There's no replaceable components. None of the paybacks materialized and the lighting industry is hiding from this. And I keep saying to them all the time, whenever I interview them, don't hide. This is the single greatest revenue driver we have for the next 20 years. Let's get it right and do the dark sky thing, the darkness thing right. Let's get these light fixtures up that are good, that are shielded, that are the right Kelvin temperature, that are controlled. And let's get this thing done. There's no reason to hide. And the lighting industry is hiding, Jane. I, I don't know if you feel the same way. They're kind of hiding from it. Like, ooh, we kind of screwed up there. Let's hope nobody notices. There's a little bit of, there's a lot of that out there. I don't know if you agree uh, with me. Yeah. Well, I, I I don't know if I can say that they're hiding so much as uh, I think it was an easy decision uh, to to go that route because we are just moths attract to the 
attracted to the brighter flame and we were selling brightness for a decade there. Um, and now I think people are coming to, I, I think that one of the, where, where the hiding may come into place where, where I see it is that for people in the lighting industry, their tool is light. So that's what they're using over and over. Mm. And they're missing the tool of darkness um, because that's not a thing. It's actually the absence of a thing. And I think it's much harder to bring that in to your routine and, and that we need to come up with ways um, to design that into, into designs. So um, it's, it's a, I think it's a force of bad habit is really where we're at now is that there's an awakening, but it's just not happening at, at what I think quickly enough, because I just want the lights to be out at night for all of us. Um, boycott light nightly is my hashtag. Um, so share it around because we really, really absolutely need to, to get control of this. Um, Haroon, I just thank you so much for your work that you, you put into this project. I love that this came into your purview so organically, so naturally, just by almost starting by stopping off on the side of the road and being awestruck and then, you know, partnering up with Gavin and, um, starting to photograph the night sky. I guess I'll just leave you with a, a, a question, uh, which I'd love to hear, but um, what what's on the radar? You're so environmentally uh, focused. So what's on the radar for you? And what do you hope to happens in the dark sky movement? So, I mean, uh, I would like to actually take sky glow and make it um, um, in, into a few other forms. We have an enormous amount of footage. So hopefully make a, a, a you know feature length doc out of it and maybe an IMAX movie out of it, um, which it seems to be a pretty good IMAX uh, fit anyway. They always like an interesting issue and um, interesting visuals. This goes well. Um, some kind of a problem, um, you know, that's posed. So this is a good one uh, for them. And, um, you know, something that maybe would be good for planetariums. At times, planetariums do good work, but they don't necessarily have light pollution education built into it. So it'd be good to have a little piece there as well. Uh, it's obviously, you know, important. A lot of people do learn about these issues in those places. They learn about the night sky, having never seen it in a planetarium. So hopefully we can get uh, some funding, you know, to wrap this project up after 10 years uh, and, you know, put it in those forums. And uh, outside of that, just to see, you know, where we're going to be after COVID because uh, this uh, is impacting our industry pretty radically. And mm. by industry, I mean people that are making nature docs that involve travel. Um, you know, if if COVID is sort of the sign of things to come, uh, that is a bad sign for our industry because it's going to make it yeah. very, very difficult for us to get around and make films of that kind. It's going to decentralize in some ways and localize. It be good in certain ways, but it could also be not so good in certain ways. It just depends. And we have to kind of wait it out and see when the dust settles, uh, what the industry practices are going to be because it'll impact the kind of films we can make or even get funding for um, anymore. So we'll see about that. But, you know, for the Night Sky side of it is I, I think it's important to still put out some films on this issue. There's only really a couple of them out there and they never really reach the mass audience in either mm -hmm. of those cases. And I think what we need is a really a mass audience uh, a, a film um, that'll um, uh, hopefully have some celebrity backing and, mm. and be able to, you know, get distribution. You know, you know, what I'd like to do is really put a movie out in the drive-in theaters, which I think is a great uh, spot as well for, for uh, a night sky kind of a movie. Cause you can get to see mm -hmm. sort of 
if you can imagine visually, sort of the night sky, pristine night sky, it's almost like a window of what it could be when you see it out into this sort of light polluted city sky. So it could be very sort of a, a striking visual in and of itself. Uh, and of course, get it out on TV and, you know, get a get a movie going. I think it'd be important and one that includes a lot of the elements we're, we're talking about here because it's um, it's going to be one thing people can sort of share and, and take in an hour and a half and and uh, show others that will do a lot more work than any thousand presentations could that I go and do or whatever it is. It's just mass right. media is really critical. And I think that's what need, yeah. you know, what we need to do. So The medium is the Absolutely. message. Harun Medmadinovich, where can people find your work? So if you go to our site, which is skyglowproject.com, uh, you can see some of our videos, images, other things on this website. It's an ever-evolving website, so every time you come back, there'll be some other stuff on it. And uh, hopefully soon you'll get to see us uh, maybe in theaters, if they ever get restored, if we get this movie done. And uh, yeah, we'll see. But you can find all the info there uh, going forward. So. Well, Jane, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty right now, but the certainty is that for sure is that the stars are there. We just can't see them. So hopefully we can, this movement will push forward and deliver results over the years. Arun, thank you for being a guest on the show. Really appreciate Thanks it. For sorry, for, sorry for the technical difficulties we had, but it's been my pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Mine too. Thanks for having me. So I just called it. It's International Dark Sky Year and forever moving forward. It's just International Dark Sky everything all the time. We're going to do this thing. We're going to do it hot. That's right. Get a grip on lighting style. But this is Starving for Darkness or what you just listened to is Starving for Darkness. And guess what? You got to go to starvingfordarkness.com. And all of that is thanks to our friends over at rablighting.com. That's right. Rablighting. R-A-B-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G.com slash slice dark sky check them out greg eric harun medmodinovich i know you haven't listened to it yet but that's a good show brother and we have our friends at rab lighting to thank for it yeah that's an awesome sponsor someone to help us along with this movement to get it going the right company for it because they have the product that you need to make the darkness happen when it needs to happen they've got the best exterior fixtures they have all fixtures and the best lighting control system to package it all together to do what you need the lighting to do when you need it to do it light cloud brother i mean come on uh i how many how much how many times have we talked about you know lighting controls we're not sure if it's, it's interior people are gonna, it makes so much sense in the exterior like they're just you know maybe you know some plaza somewhere it doesn't make sense for them but i'm talking municipalities roadways come on man you got to get a handle of control of those light fixtures why not it's just so obvious to me, Greg, and why not light cloud? So go to rablighting.com slash dark sky, big slash, slash it in there and go dark sky with it. And you know what? I really want to thank Harun Medmadinovich. What a gentleman. What a great guy, man. Greg, you got to listen to this show, skyglowproject.com. The man's speaking from his heart. Uh, I, I've never met someone so deeply rooted and knowing what this whole movement's about. And that's Harun Medmadinovich of skyglowproject.com so of course check out starvingfordarkness.com because you know you don't even know you're hungry brother you don't even know it yet figure it out start visiting some dark sky parks you know, hopefully you can with all these lockdowns and all that right now but whew, we're so thankful to Rab Lighting for jumping on board with us and finally Greg there ain't no weeks we're going 52 weeks 
This is the International Darkness Year, headed by Starving for Darkness. Thanks for listening.